if it is to be said, so it be, so it is. This is Even Star Waco, a special series by My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle-earth, but here we travel to the gilded halls of Logan Roy as we discuss the final season of Secession. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Rehearsal, episode two of Secession's final season. And we will be spoiling all of Secession, so be warned. <laughs> Just a note up top, if you like what you're hearing, or if you're interested in some of our bonus content, please check us out at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you can support this podcast, which allows us to deliver as many unhinged takes as possible in as many realms of pop <laughs> culture that exist. So, Emily, to open this conversation, I want to ask you, what is your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> it is Warwick Avenue by Duffy or Valerie by Amy Winehouse, which I think makes me bog standard every white girl from twenty, like 2008 to 2013. Um, so hopefully you have me beat. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I know that first song, or at least I don't <laughs> know it by name, um, but I'm sure I'd probably recognize it if I heard it. Uh, for me, it's uh, One Headlight by The Wallflowers. <laughs> Amazing. Um, because um, I'm sure you can tell, you know, 70 episodes into this podcast that I can barely <laughs> sing, uh, much less talk, like, in a musical way. So it's a perfect song for someone just kind of talking their way through most of the words and then just yelling, yeah, a couple times <laughs> near the end. So uh, That's awesome. it's my go-to karaoke song. Have you ever done, like, a, like, I mean, in the spirit of this episode, have you ever done, like, karaoke when you've been, like down in the pits and also picked a song to be like down in the pits or do you like largely stick to stick to the the kind of set list um i think i generally picked uh stick to the set list um i think one thing that really hampers me is that so much karaoke especially like in my day like when i was in college around the time you were a baby <laughs> um like so much karaoke was like billy joel and the beatles and stuff like that <laughs> and I am, you know, having brown parents, like, didn't grow up, like, a lot of kids I grew up with had those kind of music in their backlog just because they grew up with parents who listened to Billy Joel and the Beatles, and I didn't. Um, so I just remember, like, stumbling and pretending I knew the words to, like, let it be, um, <laughs> even though I absolutely did not. Um, yeah, I don't think I do depressing songs. I love to, like, self-flagellate in my depression, like, all the time. Yep, but same. karaoke is just not one of the vehicles for me. How about you? Oh, I've never done a sad... Well, okay, so I do, like, breakup songs. Like, Valerie is, break... well, kind of a breakup-ish song, and Warwick Avenue is, like, definitely a breakup song. I would never, in my whole life, ever do a Leonard Cohen. Like, I love Leonard Cohen deeply, but, like, no fucking chance of that. I did, however, see... Um, God, this was years ago now. This is like pre-pre-pre-COVID, many, many decades ago. And I saw someone do, what, fuck, what was it? Oh, it was Blackbird by the Beatles. And I have like a very strong, like, don't do the Beatles at karaoke rule. I think it's like mm -hmm. a bit, a bit weak. Um, but this person got up, I was in Aberdeen, I was up in, uh, up in Aberdeen, a great little karaoke they, bar they have there with like a light up Saturday Night Fever style floor, dance floor. Um, and, and they did Blackbird and it was like, gut-wrenching and so good and it was like two in the morning and it was everyone was just like shit-faced off of the fish bowls and i was like i think that's the only time i could ever allow sad karaoke ever 
And I think it did require like the better part of a 75 centiliter um, of vodka in me beforehand, not basically stone cold sober and with people who are obviously interested in other conversation topics, Connor Roy. (laughs) Yeah. um, Have you ever felt like a plant growing on rocks with bugs dying inside of you um, as a way to symbolize your lack of love from your family? Oh my God. I... So I had, um, I think I saw God twice during um, that karaoke scene. Um, and and the first time I was like trying to die, like trying to wither my own soul through like sheer mental power. And then the second time I was like, God, um, Alan Ruck has been playing the same character since Ferris Bueller. And like, I don't mean that in a derogatory way as in like, oh, one trick pony. I just mean that like he imbued Cameron in Ferris Bueller with like, a really kind of un, not unnecessary, but like almost unearned via the script amount of like depth and kind of like emotional um, nuance. And he's done it again with Connor Roy as well. And like, they are the same kind of characters in that way. Like the, the, the children, the rich kids who are kind of disparaged, forgotten about by their, their fathers, desperate for some sort of attention, no matter how they have to get it. And as Connor says in the episode, um, used to living without love. And I just had this moment of like, God, Alan Ruck is like, he's really learned how to do this role in just a fantastic way. And like, I don't think there are many actors working right now who could perform such an awful version of any Leonard Cohen song and still at the end make, have me feeling like I didn't want to like wholesale murder them. Yeah, the minute this episode ended, I think my first tweet about it was, man, Alan Ruck has just been a rock of like character actors forever, even though he is kind of, I wouldn't say typecast, but he has like kind of, when you see him pop up, he is like you say, he's like Cameron. Uh, my fond memory of him is he is in the fourth episode of Justified, um, and he is like this kind of dopey dentist, but he like <laughs> does like dental work for the uninsured and for people who can't afford it, like under the table, and it gets him into a bunch of money trouble. Um, and he's just like so charming in that role. And it, that was like the episode where I'm like, hell yeah, fuck yeah, I'm into Justified now. <laughs> um, I mean, the series goes off and it's more about Timothy Oliphant and uh, Walton Goggins just being incredibly sexy, angry at each other most of the time. Um, so it's not like what the show is about, but it's like his episode like really clicked it in place to me in terms of like the tone the show wanted, which was serious, but like ludicrous at the same time. Uh, and like he is like the perfect actor to get for that, I think. This is maybe his standout episode of the series, really. Yeah. Um, Because we've kind of been building on for a couple episodes now that he's kind of just always treated as the outsider, even though he's the firstborn. He has that famous blow up at the end of season three (laughs) after Kendall maybe tried to commit suicide. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And now he's like waltzing into what should be like the biggest days of his life. Um, And then like Willa is just like, oh man, like the tracking of Willa. And I was... I don't want to be too mean here, but I was trying to figure out what drugs Willa might have done in the 40 minutes in the bathroom (laughs) after she couldn't give her speech. I figured cocaine is a given, but um, she was just like so all over the place. And I'm like, I feel like uh, Willa would be pretty solid with cocaine now. So she must be on something else. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of just assumed she'd like gone straight for the cat. Although I don't know if Americans really do cat. I assume they do. Um, but, uh, cat big in Europe, that's the slogan for ketamine and Europe. Um, but like, yeah, she just kind of felt like she was kind of in the the moment before stumbling into a K-hole. She, she kind of had that energy or like the kind of, 
it's not bath salts in the US. Your bath salts means something different, I think, but like um, our Europe bath salts, that it, it very much has that kind of flavor to what she was doing. And and it was also interesting because like, I think there is a, uh, I think again, as I always say with this, like if this were a lesser show and these were lesser actors, I think her whole two seconds of screen time there had the potential to be like kind of rough, not rough, but like kind of too, like too too much. Like I I think it really had the potential for her to just be the screaming kind of yowling um, runaway bride, um, or you know the gold digger who is suddenly having a change of heart towards the emotional or whatever. And like I think the thing that was the most horrifying about her really short amount of screen time in this episode was the fact that like it was none of that, and like the fear in her eyes and the way that she was behaving didn't feel like oh, she's a gold digger who's, you know, suddenly having a change of heart and wanting something more authentic. It is, she actually does love Connor. Um, and she is actually having her like emotional life fall apart around her. And this reaction is more the reaction of someone who is like fighting against something far more internalized than like whether or not they're just like marrying for money. And I thought that was like oddly, not oddly, because I think it's very in- like in the way that like it's very in line with how the show handles everything but like it felt very kind of comfortingly terrifying not terrifying but just like galling like deeply upsetting to watch her like that because i was like oh god girl like i'm so sorry for you i'm so sorry you don't have any like friends who are actually taking care of you and i'm so sorry like you're in in this situation you know what i mean yeah absolutely um even uh, when Connor is uh, talking to Rome and the rest as they show up at that rehearsal dinner, um, the way Connor says she disappeared into the bathroom with her friends yep. um, makes it imply they might not even really have been her friends. She might have just like grabbed a waiter who probably had some drugs on him or something. <laughs> like it's, and I, I'm not trying to say Willa has no friends, but it's you can justly tell she feels like she is like kind of drowning and like all alone, and there's like no one there. And I actually think it's. I don't know if I want to call it a sweet story, but like the way that like Connor is like actually really concerned where she is this entire time, whether she's at the bottom of the Hudson River or wherever <laughs> uh, the GPS is putting her. But really that reveal at the end when he walks back into the bedroom and they have the camera perfectly squared up so you can't see half the bed. Yep. So it's like you're waiting for that like pan over the cut. I forget what uh, camera technique they use. But like just waiting to see if she's actually there or not. It's just such a great way. And the way that, you know, as soon as she notices he's there, she's just like, please come spoon me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just it's very touching. And it's like, like you said, it's not falling into any tropes with her character, but it's also allowing her to be a rich character, even with pretty minimal screen time. Um, and like really all of like 10 lines of dialogue in this episode. Um, because she doesn't really say anything at the end. Um, it's just like her really drunken, coked out, blabbering to Roman when they're arriving at the party. Yeah. Well, and I think I think this this episode in particular and the kind of end of the last episode, I, I guess this whole show is really like a show about as much as it's about rich people being awful. It is also very much a show about loneliness and like the ways in which people are lonely. Um, and I think. Connor and Willa are always really fascinating um, to me because more so than any other um, people, it, like groups of characters in this show, they 
always they always seem to have each other and like even when Willa is kind of like you know rolling her eyes at Connor being embarrassing or when Connor's doing things that are genuinely mortifying like they always seem to kind of come together as a pair um and 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 like I think Connor's reaction to Willa you know hightailing it out of there like checking to kind of you know like coveting her almost but but tracking her in the way that you might track like a last iPhone um is interesting because I think it is like um, you know, his dad didn't give a fuck about where he was ever. And like, we, we, we've seen that all the way throughout the show, like his, his whole family, but his dad in particular, just don't care about where he is. He could well be at the bottom of the Hudson and it would take weeks before any of them noticed um, that he wasn't there. Um, and, and I think like Connor is using the limited kind of tools of consumption, find my iPhone, um, I, you know, that he has at his disposal to, to express that kind of love or push out against that loneliness in a way that like everybody else isn't and like Willa I think you're probably right like she was not probably actually with her like real friends but like Willa is in a very lonely and and deeply isolating situation and like her reaction to at the end she's still there um and she's still kind of reaching out for Connor like I think that was really it, it kind of summarized the show for me in so many ways, just that kind of like, and you know, all the siblings were like, they're all talking at each other, but not really ever talking to each other. And then like, you know, Roman the whole way through this episode, dropping some of the most like deeply upsetting lines. I think he's had all season and just absolutely fucking nobody responding to it at all, not even acknowledging it. And it's just so much of this, like, these people are lonely and they're operating in these bubbles of loneliness and like none of them are bothering to like reach out and, you know, enlarge in the bubble or pop the bubble, except for Connor and Willa. And even that isn't quite going as smoothly as it would for people who are not this fucked up. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And uh, like, this is not a new role for Connor in terms of like kind of where he is as like the emotional part of this family. Um, and I think perhaps that connection with Willa, who is a real person, yeah. um, when it feels like so many of these people aren't serious people or serious figures <laughs> to borrow Logan's word, like she's actually a real person. And it's probably because she doesn't come from this like gilded strata of wealth that all these people do. Um, and I think that's kind of had an effect on Connor. Uh, when they're in the karaoke room, it reminded me a lot of the second episode of last season um, when they're all in Kendall's bedroom Oof. or Kendall's daughter's bedroom. Um, and like Connor is the only one's like, hey, look at us. All the siblings are here. Let's try to like talk about stuff and like be normal, real people. Um, and instead, it's just all of the other three kids kind of throwing their own insecurities at each other. Um, and you kind of have that same thing here with Khan, too. Um, and he basically invited Logan into the karaoke room because it's like, well, this is how I can have all my family here for me on the day before my wedding when my bride is who knows where, possibly at the bottom of the river or wherever other locations he mentioned. Um, it's interesting, though, that you brought up Roman, who is definitely very, very weird in this episode. And it's sometimes really, really gross. But also, it seems like he's trying to be a real person this yeah. episode um, because he's the one who's like, hey, man, we should we should spend time with Khan. Uh, hey, Willa, are you OK? She doesn't look great. May, do we need to worry about this? Um, and then obviously he's the one who goes crawling back to dad at the end. Um, so it is very interesting how Roman is kind of evolving into the most real of like, let's say, the three children that kind of matter. No offense, Khan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think Roman has always had this struggle, like, 
against his own self-awareness. And I think this episode really sucks, like not quality wise, but just like sucks to watch him because, um, you know, he's always been sort of like Riley self-aware and he's always made reference to things that are fucked up about himself in like a really joking way um, that I think like by and large gives like the audience and and his his siblings in particular, like the kind of permission they were kind of hoping for um to disregard everything about who roman is and like how he is doing um and 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 i think in this episode you're coming against like roman being aware that like his family are cunts like and are just like the most despicable awful people um and and he is too and i think he he is also aware that he is among them um and and like that kind of moment where like shiv is having a go at him for having been messaging logan for logan's birthday um and 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 roman kind of responding being like but of course i was gonna talk to my father on on his birthday and then logan when logan comes into the the karaoke room being like you know and i think i can't decide what i think of the moment but like when logan is like i wanted you all at my birthday and sounds kind of choked up about it like that i think there's a very clear line between like roman having been the one to message roman having been the one to reach out and and then logan later picking that as the thing that he mentions and i don't know if it's like a fully kind of emotionally empty thing it's just logan being as manipulative as he's always been or if like roman really did tap into something about his father there um that that actually did make it into logan's stony heart i don't know like what do you make of that like that that kind of thing with logan where he was like i wanted you at my party do you did you read that genuinely or did you read that as like manipulation I almost kind of actually read that as genuine, but yeah. I think everything with Logan is at some level manipulation. Um, if not intentionally, the effect it had of getting Roman into Logan's apartment by the end of the episode kind of hints that it at least worked, whether or not he was trying to or not. Um, it is really interesting because this is starting to become like a Brian Cox, like almost farewell tour because these two episodes have given him a lot of material and a lot of varying material. Um, like you have the big like kind of Mark Antony speech he gives at ATN in the beginning of the episode. Um, and then near the end, you have this like very earnest and like it almost feels like a man who's ready to die. It's like, I just wish mm -hmm. my kids were there for me on my deathbed, essentially. Um, and it is kind of ATN and Waystar Royco kind of stands in for like Logan's life. Even at the end when he's telling Roman, it's like, you're not Pierce, you're not PGN, you're ATN. That's less about the media companies he's talking about and more who Roman is as a person. Like he's the real successor, I guess, or mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it to Logan. Yeah. Um, but I really did uh, feel like he was trying. And I think it kind of goes back to uh, the earlier board meeting when uh, like Carrie walks in and he, she's like, what's wrong? Is like uh, the kids are possibly teaming up with Stewie and it might mess up the deal with Matson or change the numbers. And then the way he's like, they got some juice. Like, it's almost like he's coming to this after he found something to respe respect them over. Um, as compared to the last episode where he had no respect for their outbidding uh, him in terms of the Pierce deal. Um, and that's why, like, there was no texts or phone calls that we saw in that first episode. Mm. But here they, like, made a smart business move or it's like they did something that he could kind of respect in some way. Um, and then then he shows up into their lives, which I think was something that I just flagged as 
leading into his surprisingly earnest conversation in that karaoke room. Yeah, and I kind of get the vibe that he's like desperate, I, like really, truly desperate. I, I feel like more than ever, like like Logan's whole thing has kind of been this in- incredibly complex balancing act between looking pathetic and being the kind of strongest, most terrifying man in the room. And I think for the first time since episode one, he is now pathetic um, again and and he is lost and he's up against the wall. And and like, I think, you know, all of the I was kind of laughing because there was so much strangeness in episode one, like with the kind of Logan, Tom, Greg kind of half of this story. There was so much there and it was so kind of high power and and high energy and frenetic. And then this episode was like, it just felt like watching the kind of worst of America's funniest home videos. And like, you know, (laughs) there's like bits and pieces. There was stuff that I was like really, truly hooting and hollering at, like the Stakhanovite stuff. That was awesome. Um, Love a good old fashioned USSR reference or like um, the (laughs) Jaws, if everyone worked for Jaws, knocked me out. But like, it was a very otherwise low kind of energy plot line in this episode and i think it's because like logan is realizing the only person he has on his side is tom and tom is pathetic and greg and greg is also pathetic and carrie who sucks at her job um and atn is falling apart because it's old and it's dated and he's like having to come to terms with he raised his children poorly they are morons um and now he is about to die and he's going to have to sell break up the empire you know he's got to be diocletian splitting the empire and he's got (laughs) to live with that and like He's I think he's finally starting to realize that he's kind of fucked up and that kind of weird desperation. You know, I hate Shiv. Every word Shiv says makes me want to die. But like her being like, you're just a human gaslight, like is ridiculous. And it's such like a perfect kind of encapsulation of how these like weirdo rich liberals talk. But like it's also kind of accurate because you like like you say, you can't really trust anything Logan says. But like even more so now, because like he is pathetic and is losing but is he about to pull something out that will just like screw it all and is this just kind of like the you know boy crying wolf kind of scenario yeah no that makes sense like when he shows up at atn and is kind of terrifyingly moseying around <laughs> it like at first i thought we were gonna walk right into like another senility scene with uh logan mm-hmm. like kind of how they did at what the shareholder meeting last season um, where he thinks there's a dead cat under his chair and he's uh, he has the UTI that's fucking up with, with his brain. I legitimately thought we were going to go there. Um, and then when he gets up and delivers that rallying cry, um, I know I called it an Antony speech. The reason I have this in mind is mainly because he's a Shakespearean actor. So I'm always like, what does this remind me of? But like Tom getting up before him and giving like the weakest, most bland speech just reminds me of like, Brutus explaining why they killed Caesar. And then after that, Antony gives his big, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen kind of uh, oration. Nice. Um, and that wins the crowd. Like the the way Logan kind of starts out is like very kind of, you know, what is 14 equal to 40, pal? And then he like repeats this yelling at this like no name guy in the front <laughs> of the crowd. But then somehow, despite the fact that he's basically saying gibberish, um, he like gets up there and finally like gets people to like respond to just his energy more or less. And like a lot of it's just his swears, like saying so fucking spicy. And you can just see people's like, can he say that? But they're like into it a little bit. Um, And then 
he gets into all these like I assume Scottish phrasings about being too fucking lily livered and no, shove the bunting up your ass. It was definitely uh, not us. I was like, is he doing like a Clint Eastwood thing? Because it's not lily livered. Certainly isn't us. Bunting, I guess, fine. That's a bit a bit British. But I was like, oh my god, is he fully cracked? And is he trying to do the Clint Eastwood delivering a weird speech to an empty chair at the RNC? Like that was so odd. <laughs> yeah, but I guess my read on that, which might be wrong because it's not what the episode would have you believe this is less like a guy who's like i'm now gonna be like hands-on full-on with atn and more like the guy who comes in and says he's gonna do that and then you're never gonna see him again on that floor like he will be up in his c-suite office for the rest of the time but he just wants to act like he showed up and if anything good happens it'll be because he rallied the troops and called them your you know fucking pirates or whatever the hell he was yelling at them um but he's going to be more the guy we see later in the episode where he's like yelling at greg and tom is like why do we order new pizzas we can just microwave the ones we got because you know eight dollars fucking matters to logan roy at all yeah um so it's like I, I like I view that entire like speech as like a total performance. And I honestly would not be surprised if he does not have a hand in anything that ATN does forward, aside from perhaps replacing like Sid with one of his guys. Like Roman specifically is what he seems to intimate at the episode's end. Yeah. See, I think you've taken a much higher brow approach to this than I did because because I like I had in my head that that speech was kind of like the reverse uh, Karn and Linus Mosk, Iron Bruhan speech in Andor, where like, you know, uh, Mo- Mosk, not Mosk, oh, Mosk is like very clearly the like more authentic and more kind of charismatic in his own weird way of the two and able to rally the troops better than Karn, who is obviously Tom Wamsgans. Um, and 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 yet, despite that, like Andor, the show makes very clear that both of these guys are fucking embarrassing. Both of these guys are small timers. Both of these guys are doomed to fail because of their own terminal moronism. And like, I kind of had that vibe of like Tom's the guy who's kind of failing politely, um, and and Logan is the guy who is failing, deluding himself into thinking he's not failing, but trying to go out with like a bang almost. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and just like. Uh, I don't know. I, I like I find it so hard and it's it's this thing the whole way through where like I find it hard to understand like whether the missteps that Logan is making are like not actually missteps and maybe he's just making moves that will, you know, come to fruition later in some master chess move or whatever or if they are truly the like decisions of someone who is not totally mentally there, not in, in complete control of their mental faculties because of like apparently quite seriously untreated um, either dementia or Alzheimer's um, after having had a stroke. Um, and and like, you know, it's the things like the whole Carrie thing, everything with that Carrie plot with like her almost becoming an ATN anchor and the not and, and Logan kind of getting involved, but then not getting involved. And all of that, and then going back on what he said, because he couldn't really make the, all of that was so strange and baffling. And I'm like, is he truly actually fucking losing it? Like, what is happening here that this whole weird thing just happened like that? Yeah. And like between the rallying cry, between like confronting his kids, even maybe just setting Carrie up to have something like to do, you know, perhaps even after Logan is gone from the company, like, it feels very much like he's getting his affairs in order. Um, I'm going to use, like, the second most commonly associated, like, 
basis for secession after like King Lear. I think it's the Godfather films. Hmm. Um, and I think this has been a running theme throughout both. There's obviously, you know, who's going to take over the family after, you know, the Don is gone. But like even like uh, season two, episode six are justies. Um, that's like one of the first big Pierce episodes, like where they were like working on that deal. And it's all it's set in our justies. I have no idea where that is. But like wherever they have that conference center set up, like all the big windows that are looking out on lakes, like all of that is very specific Godfather two imagery, like Michael Corleone's home in Las Vegas. Um, and then the ending to uh, season three, um, like last season when, uh, you know, Tom shows up, you know, at the very end and you realize he's the one who betrayed him and Shiv's like looking at him through the doorway. That's all very the end of the first Godfather with Kay looking at Michael as everyone's starting to kiss his ring and all that stuff. And then the final episode here uh, or the final scene in this episode where uh, Logan and uh, Roman are talking, that's very much like one of the scenes after Michael returned from Sicily in the first Godfather. Um, I'd assume most people have seen The Godfather, but at the beginning of the story, Michael was like the good clean kid who wasn't going to get into the family mafia business, but then he goes to Sicily and he gets involved with the murder of Sterling Hayden and some other actor. Um, and then, you know, he basically becomes the heir to uh, Don Corleone. And then you really see like as uh, Marlon Brando's Don Corleone is starting to like lose it, like getting physically just like too feeble to keep up with this. Um, and he's like talking to Michael, who is like the youngest son um, about like, this is what we have to do. This is what's going to happen. This is what we need to get ready for. And I really got that vibe from this final scene and not just the final scene, but like the score that opens up this episode and specifically ends this episode is a very stringy waltz, which is, very much the Godfather's like main theme. And I really was just feeling that this is kind of Don Corleone setting his affairs in order. Um, and I'm almost getting to the point where I'm not sure if Logan Roy lives that much longer. Um, like almost like the back half of the season might be people trying to pick, like try to pick up the pieces in the wake of his death. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay, cool. So, so then that gets us into this question that I think I asked last time, which is like, Based off of this episode, the previous episode, what do you think Succession looks like at the close of the final episode? Right now, I would have to say Roman is in the lead. Um, and that lead might be like the opposite of a lead. <laughs> it's like he he's the one still anchored to daddy. He's the one being dragged behind and hasn't unshackled himself completely yet. Um, but I think right now would be the time to be highest on Roman. Um, because he both seems to be the most unwilling to uh, kick daddy away. Um, and also, like, he's the one that Logan's appears to have some kind of real relationship with at this point. I don't know what a real relationship is to Logan Roy. Um, but obviously, they're texting, at least to the point. He said, take care to his father, which in this family means, like, ultimate affection. Um, <laughs> so to me, it still looks like Roman, but... it. it also might look like they're essentially going to be balkanizing Waystar Royco after this like merger and possible acquisition of Pierce uh, or not Pierce, uh, but the Matson deal rather. Yeah. Um, so um, you're, and you're really starting to see those kind of like dividing lines show up because one thing I noted is first of all, how little Jerry is in the first two episodes. Yeah. But then in this episode, it becomes clear that I think Jerry is like a hundred percent for sure going to be switching over to the Matson side of the business because um, that's what Logan accuses her of when <laughs> uh, Hugo accidentally was playing Carrie's demo tape <laughs> when he walked in. 
but like but he like sends Hugo to put his lipstick on and go like suck off some like shareholders. Um, he has nothing for Jerry. He's like, are you a fucking Viking here? Um, are you already ready to go work for Matson? He's already either cutting him, out, cutting her out of the circle, and that might be like an official thing. Like she might be like Matson's new like interim CEO as well uh, when all the cards settle. So right now. I don't. I think Roman is in the lead for what's left of what Logan's actually going to hold on to. But I think you're starting to see where other people are going to start slipping away. Whether it's to work for Matson and Gojo, um, I kind of see Shiv. She just doesn't cut it. Yeah. <laughs> like I think she's going to have to cut a future for herself that's kind of separate from Logan and the ATN brand. But where are you feeling about this? Yeah. I mean, I think I basically agree. Like I, I feel like. Um, not quite king of the ashes for Roman, but like the one left hand, like holding the kind of bloody knife after they've all killed each other. Like, um, oh, bugger. It's not Ophelia who lives. Oh, shit. I can't remember who it is that lives in Hamlet. Maybe it is Ophelia. Whoever it is that's left standing. Uh, Ophelia definitely does not live. No, you're right. You're right. It's definitely not Ophelia. Fuck. Is it? Oh, it's one of these. It's not Gertrude. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. Like Whoever it is that lives. The only the person I remember living is Fortinbras, and he just shows up at the end and is like, what the fuck is that's all it, this? That's it. That's it. He is. Uh, he's Fortinbras. That's what it is. Yeah. That's how he's going to end up ooh, at the end. That's good. Where he's just going to be like the one who has to pick up the pieces after everyone else has made all of the moves. Um, and like, I think that is like kind of how this is going to end for him. And I also think that like Roman's increasing self-awareness and also like his increasing sort of moroseness that we've seen, um, is kind of leading into that way where he's going to be the one guy left self-aware at the end, just being fucking miserable with everything and possibly also realizing that he should have done slightly more to defend himself and to protect himself as I think Shiv also learned, I think really interestingly, like Shiv seems to be kind of halfway there in terms of awareness, but she still has a lot of blind spots. And I think like the whole kind of deal with Tom having screwed her out of all of the best divorce lawyers and her having been basically blindsided by that, even after Tom screwed her on the on on, uh, you know, the kids kind of pulling away at the end of the last season, like even after that, she still didn't realize that Tom was going to fuck her. And and I think that was also really interesting. And that is kind of I feel like an omen for where this is going. Like Shiv is having her moment of realizing that, like, everything is falling down around her. Kendall's been doing that for three seasons and um, Connor is now also having it. I think Roman's going to be the last one to have it, but I think he's going to be too late. Yeah, I think the Shiv stuff in this episode is really interesting because she's completely blindsided by this, like, you know, what, tie up all the divorce lawyers in the city move. But then she is also instantly able to know that that's her dad's move more yeah. than anything. Um, so it's like, if you kind of knew that, you perhaps should have been prepared for it a little bit more than you were. Um, it kind of goes back to what Logan says at the end. Like, you're not serious figures. You're not serious people. Um, and one thing I noted, like, I thought it was very deliberate was when she's having that phone call initially with Tom, like you see her like kind of, you know, like clean, clear out some eye boogers or some schmutz in her eye and her wedding ring is very prominently on for yeah. that shot. And it was not on in the first episode, according to one of our uh, discord uh, members. Um, so like, it's very interesting to see where she is with this. And I think a lot of what's motivating her in this episode is she feels kicked, so that's why she wants to kick dad a little bit um, just to, like, this whole Matson and trying to get more money thing. I I don't think she's trying to blow up the deal at all, 
Um, I just think she wants to kind of just assert herself because she's feeling like she can't, that like Logan and now Tom has her completely played and that she's in a cage. So she just wants to do anything that kind of restores her own sense of agency, yeah. even though it's not really even her play and it's probably not going to work because I think Kendall has far more malicious intent than she does with this whole Matson deal. Yeah, I, I, it's it's one of these things that's really interesting because like Shiv, Shiv is so fascinating as a character because like you can't get away from the fact that she's a woman. Um, Shiv tries to get away from the fact that she is a woman all the time. Like she is very like, I think she's very conscientious about kind of degendering herself most of the time, except for when it is really beneficial for her, like blackmailing fucking victims of sexual assault. Um, it is only in the moments in which it is like a genuinely good kind of uh, exploitative moment for her to be a woman that she is openly a woman um, and and really embraces that. And for the rest of the time, she seems to be very much running away from it. And I think it's because, you know, she definitely sees herself as the better of her siblings. Um, I, you know, I think in some ways she's not Absolutely. completely wrong. Um, like, and so she, she's probably used to being, you know, by virtue of her money, she's probably used to being able to look at her brothers and be like, not only are you guys fucking morons, but I'm better than you. And like the whole world will see me as better than you. Um, and, and like, you know, her gender doesn't, her being a woman doesn't come into it. Um, and, and I think she is butting up against the, the problem of it, it actually coming into it. Um, you know, like Logan's got a whole string of divorces. Um, and and he can fuck around wherever he wants um, and not really face any consequences for it. Shiv got married um, because it implies a level of stability. Um, Shiv fucked around and quite literally found out and had to pay the price for it. And now Shiv is coming up against this kind of her own father, man, turned against her in, in, in her divorce. Like her own father picked her mm -hmm. husband's side in her divorce and and there is a boys club that is forming there and she doesn't seem to have like any women around her who care about her um all of the kind of divorce lawyers going on on tom's side is like very much this kind of allegory i guess for the the the, the kind of way patriarchy always gets it's druthers in the end. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's because like Tom is a violent misogynist, even though he almost certainly is like I but like I think there is like the, the, there is an element to which like Shiv can't escape the things that she has so far been able to escape by virtue of her 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 money um, and, and, and her kind of um, um, active ignorance. Um, and she's now starting to face them. And I think she's going to face this problem of no one is going to take her seriously if she's a woman with four ex-husbands in the way that they would take Logan seriously as a man with four ex-wives. Um, and I think that like whole kind of her going back and forth on the wedding ring stuff, her not really thinking about the fact that Tom is going to fuck her, like all of these things I think really point to that shift, just not quite being used to having this like almost immovable, almost immutable kind of underdog status among people she thinks and, and potentially is better than. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I'm thinking back to when, you know, Connor was in in the dumps this episode and she's the one who's like, eh, there'll be other people that you'll meet or whatever. And Roman and Kendall are like, no, no, hold on to Willa for dear life. Do not let that yeah. one get away. And you wonder if, I, I mean, Shiv just kind of repeating a thing that people say when people are having tough relationship issues, but you wonder how much that's really about her and really nothing to do with Con and Willa. Um because, you know, Khan and Willa work. Uh, Shiv and Tom don't. So I can see why. Uh, I mean, 
they kind of they can work, um, but they just obviously do not. And I think a lot of that is kind of on Shiv, um, because like you say, she sometimes she's playing a role, sometimes she's genuine, and I think at some point she's kind of lost who she is. Like I think she had a better idea of herself in the first season when she was working for fake Bernie Sanders campaign, <laughs> um, and then the closer she got pulled into the family orbit and the family business. That's what really started to like throw her off and mess with her. And it's understandable because like dad wanted her brought in, but then dad wouldn't acknowledge that he was thinking of her as CEO. And even when he did put her in some kind of placeholder positions, uh, he, he was just like cutting her out or like, oh, we'll deal with it. Oh, Frank's on it. Carl's on it. Um, so even when she was kind of given reins, it was all kind of taken away from her. So her biggest contribution so far to the company was the one being at the mic when Kendall started playing Rate Me by Nirvana. Um, yeah. So you kind of see how everything that she's doing is kind of just her kind of flailing, just trying to find somewhere where she can get some purchase in her life, whether it's personal or political. Um, and that's something they specifically talk about in that karaoke scene is like, Carrie's like, well, dad wanted to talk about the personal stuff for, and then talk about the political. And she was like, no, it's, it's the same thing. Um, and you can see how that's all tied up and messed up in her. Yeah. And, and I think it's also, it, it, it is really interesting. Like, you know, the Connor's meltdown in the previous season was I'm the eldest son, but like Shiv's the only daughter and they put all of this emphasis on, oh, he's the eldest son. And Kendall is always like, oh, well, you know, it's my burden as the eldest son and and son this and this. And it's all very futile. Um, and, and, and Shiv, by and large, doesn't push back against it. She's never really questioning that premise. She's more questioning whether she should get the kind of good treatment as the eldest son. It's never, but why is it the eldest son? Why is it the son? Um, and, and I think that's always, that, that always kind of interests me because it, I think it is so reflective of how like so many, so many women, um, and, and this is really, I, I mean this sincerely, no judgment kind of thing, but like so many women try to, or want to escape the, these, the immense difficulties posed by patriarchy by just pretending that, that it's not a thing that, that, um, actually impacts them. You know, there's the, and I, I, well, though I am to cite the West Wing, um, there's that whole bit in the West Wing with the Republican woman who is like, I don't need the equal rights amendment because, um, because I don't want to be singled out as a woman. Um, I just want to be equal and equal means not putting my name down, you know, not putting women down specifically, calling women out specifically. And that is a very, prominent mindset for a lot of women. And, and, you know, I can't fault them for it. It's, it's, it's also certainly one that I often, um, pick up, uh, and, and follow, but like, it is interesting to see so clearly the kind of awful, awful side effect of, of, or, or I guess consequences of going like that and of pretending that like patriarchy as a thing just doesn't exist where it so clearly does. The men never have to name it. Um, the men never have to say we're doing this only because it's, uh, you know, because men should reign supreme um, and because women are all uh, sluts and whores or whatever. Um, but like it is there um, and Shiv's failure to name it and Shiv's sort of unwillingness to reckon with it is really to her own detriment in the end. And and I think it's also kind of interesting because like the, the show loves the almost outsiders. Um, it loves its Toms. It loves its Gregs, its Willas. Um, and, and, and Shiv could be that outsider, that kind of the show loves um, in the same way, except she's so committed to being an insider. She will literally never, ever, ever let it happen. Yeah. Uh, it actually reminds me of surprise game of Thrones. <laughs> There's a scene in season three where uh, Cersei goes up to her father 
And he ba- she basically yells at him is like, while you were trying to groom Jamie or Tyrion to be your successor, have you ever thought I'm the one who's been listening and learning and doing all this stuff? And then and she thinks that the only reason she's being held down is her gender. And that's definitely a part of it. But like Tywin's like, no, you're just kind of dumb. <laughs> um, you do all sorts of stupid stuff. You let Ned Stark, one of the most well-loved people in the continent like just get beheaded um because your bastard son is just an awful shit like you just do not have things in control as much as you like to pretend you are as much as you like to perform that you do have everything under control um and sorry i just had to get that analogy in there because that's like (laughs) the first thing i was thinking about while you were describing her relationship but um i do want to pivot uh because i do want to talk a little bit about kendall Uh uh so let me start off why do you think matson called kendall because they are the same person, I think. I think Matson is just Kendall if Kendall had had a slightly more disengaged father. Um, and I think he sees that, like, I think Matson looks at Kendall and sees his own weakness, as in Matson's own weakness, but sees that Kendall's weakness is there for the pushing and prodding because he still has to answer to his father and is so desperate to not like to get out from underneath his father that like instead of using the kind of potential security of his father to kind of bolster his defenses instead he's just showing his weaker spots even more openly um in a way that i think roman never did um roman used his father's position as kind of his lord um to be a defense for himself and it meant that like roman checked the fuck out when when matson and 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 logan told them told him to check the fuck out and like he you know he looked a little bit um upset by it but he did it um and didn't really make a stink about it and kendall is incapable of doing that and i think matson has seen that and matson has seen that like they are very much these kind of birds of a feather but like kendall is the weaker of the two Oh, I absolutely love that. I was honestly not even thinking about it from that angle. I I just assumed that uh, Matson figured that Kendall was the weakest of the three kids. Um, like he's the one that he'd be most able to bully and that he has a working relationship with uh, Roman. So he doesn't want to upset that. Um, I don't know if Matson knows how to talk to women. If we go on his like <laughs> real life basis of Elon Musk, he probably absolutely doesn't. Um, so it's just like Kendall made sense to lean on, but I love the fact that it might be, um, more a self-identification of Kendall being more, more like him. Uh, and because, and I think he maybe gets the instinct that, you know, Kendall might do it to fuck it up, which is why he's like, don't do anything. Don't push him. Don't push your dad. Um, cause it'll fuck the deal. Um, not knowing that that's kind of exactly what Kendall was trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah no, it's, I really it's, like, it's like an allegiance test, isn't it? Because it's like if if Kendall, who is the kind of maverick among them, if Kendall realizes the like severity of Matson's threat here and and stays in line, then Kendall can be done. Like then then Matson can do whatever the fuck he likes with Kendall, and Kendall will never actually hit out again. You know what I mean? Like like it's basically it is the fucking thing with um to go Game of Thrones with the TV show with the the dog the dire wolf that Joffrey has killed like. Like Ned Stark not saying a fucking word about that was like the the kind of green light, the go ahead, do whatever you want to me and my family, because so long as Ned is there, like they will always put their weird little code of chivalry above like not fucking dying. And that was like <laughs> that uh, letting that happen was like very much the kind of okay, doors are open, it's it's open season. And and I think like if Kendall does kind of toe the line and not piss off Matson, then then he's done for. 
Yeah, and it is a very similar to. Uh, uh, so, like, it's kind of funny how this is all timed out because uh, Kendall lies to Shiv and Rome about like Matson calling him. Is like, oh, it was just Stewie, and this is happening right after they just gave Roman so much shit for talking to dad still. It's like, let's see your phone. Let's see what you've been saying to him. Meanwhile, Kendall's actually hiding, uh, you know, what's actually happening on his phone, I guess. And it is something, this is again, very similar to the start of last season where there is, we saw the kids in the premiere of this episode seem like they're a team. You know, they're, you know, going to always be a little bit shitty to each other, but it seemed like the three were kind of working in concert here. Um, but then they always end up getting in the way of themselves in various ways. And I don't think it's any one person. I think all three of them are getting in their own ways in different reasons, whether it's Roman's love for daddy or uh, Shiv's, you know, need to assert herself in some ma- manner or Kendall's, Kendall's everything. <laughs> He's got a lot going on. Uh, but it's just like they can't help but get in their own way and stuff. But I really do think he, uh, Kendall just wants to fuck this. Um, I think he gets nothing out of anything except for fucking with his father at this point. Like, he's the one who's, like, the most happy in that karaoke room when Shiv's yelling at Dad and Roman's all conflicted. Kendall's the one's like, ah, oh, holy shit, Dad's having feelings! <laughs> um, he's just going, like, insane with glee at all this. Um, so I think, in a, in a way, Kendall is, like, the most complex character, but in another way, he has the simplest motivation yes. out of all of them. yes. Oh my god, absolutely agreed. Yeah, because this is always my problem with Kendall because I think the show has done such a good job of from the start portraying him as like the emotionally complex one. He is he is the one with depth and potentially a conscience and a feeling of shame and and awareness and desire to get the fuck out. But like I think in the end he's just he's 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 a narcissist, really, is what it is. Is like it's all about mm-hmm. him and clearing his kind of sense of conscience and his kind of reputation and what he wants and and then it's kind of just become this singular single-minded fuck dad regardless of the outcome and i think like as uh, as we've already kind of discussed like i i think roman has ended up being the more the most complex of them all um in the end um and and kendall has just fallen through through his own sort of machinations into being just a kind of fairly one note figure um and mm-hmm. and and really in the end like he is nothing more than just Logan's kind of um, backwash really in a, in a can of Coke. Um, and I think there's something really grim about it as well, because um, he was at the start, you know, it's it's not grim. It's actually fitting is like, it, he is very much where all of these tech guys are going like the Jonah, whatever's the Buzzfeed guy, um, Jonah Pretty, um, and mm-hmm. uh, the other guy who did Twitter and then Jack before him and Elon Musk, if Elon Musk could ever shut the fuck up, like all of these guys are kind of going the same way into like, revealing the fact that they're all not particularly interesting and not particularly clever. Um, and Kendall's just doing that in slow motion with the added pressure of just humiliating himself in front of his family over and over and over. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, preface this with saying I am not uh, making fun of Buddhism or any of our Buddhist followers, but the way that Kendall was constantly citing the Buddha or Buddhist oh teachings in this episode, it is so obviously it's like so Kendall just thought, Oh, Buddhists are probably interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and let me like grab some things is like, you have to be transient like water or some shit like that. And then uh, what, what Roman has some great lines about it. I was like, yeah, that's the first time I saw a Buddhist wearing Tom Fords. Oh my God, um, I was and dying. All that kind of stuff. But um, you can see, and it's kind of weird because it almost makes Ken seem like pretty Zen about all this. 
like it's almost like the chaos is where he's finding some kind of like I don't know mental peace or inner peace like he's almost like at home fighting his dad um it's kind of when he's in like that kind of liminal space in between fighting his dad and wanting his dad's love that things really go shitty for Kendall that's when he ends up killing waiters or drowning in pools um <laughs> But right here, when he's just like pure on combat with dad, um, and he has what he thinks the siblings on his side is like when he thinks he is like, is when he's at the most peace. Um, and it's really interesting to see him in this kind of mode um, because he really should, he is the most broken of them all, but he's acting like he isn't at this point. Yeah. And I also think it's like the pseudo profundity of it because like it is like the guys who whip out the fucking Marcus Aurelius or the like art of war when because mm-hmm. they have nothing to say. And like Kendall has no personality. He has nothing to who he is except for like a guy who does a lot of drugs, a guy who is depressed and a guy who has a bad relationship with his father, which is like every guy in America. So like who fucking cares? Um, and, and in lieu of like, you know, he, he, before he was the business guy, he was the, the innovator and the disruptor and he was going to do all of these things. And then it turned out he had no, no, no spine and, and really just no intelligence or no awareness. And so now he's had to fall back into like, the only thing that he is is conflict with his father. And so he's whipping out the Buddha quotes because he's trying to seem clever, but like, in reality, he's just a, one of those like early iPhone quote generator apps where you could like shake it and get a new one. That's all he is. And like, whereas, you know, I think Roman having some of his best lines, like the hey, Buddha, nice Tom Fords, like those kinds of lines were just banger after banger with Roman, because I think it is very much a sign that like Roman, unlike Kendall, has some sort of interior life um, and and like his kind of dogged loyalty to his father um both as his father and as the leader of the business um is part of something more complex than just kind of um being a bit of a cuck i guess <laughs> i hate to use it like that but like you know as roman would say um and 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 kendall you know kendall's is just he's just an empty suit at this point and i and i think that contrast that is building between the two of them has ended up being vastly more interesting uh, as a kind of driver of of this show than like kendall versus his father where kendall's just always going to lose so i don't want to uh sign off before we talk a little bit about greg and his haircut and him trying to strong arm carry about her uh audition tape um, so first things first, what do you think about Greg's haircut? I love it. I am so glad that Greg finally got a big boy haircut. I can imagine him going down to Supercuts and having a picture of like a probably Eddie Redmayne circa 2010 in Burberry. Um, no, circa 2012, because that's when Lame is came out in the Burberry ads and being like, I want this. And then the Supercuts person very nicely giving him mostly that. And then Greg not having enough money uh, in cash to pay for the $15 and having to split it across two different credit cards that are like. <laughs> not really his and i am so proud of him for finally getting that done <laughs> yeah um so we're recording this the day after a bunch of like barbie promotional stuff uh dropped and i don't want to ask emily's opinion on greta gerwig or her catalog <laughs> but there is one of the promo the character posters for michael Sarah's character <laughs> has almost the exact same haircut as greg has in this episode um, which I just thought was <laughs> incredible. Yeah, you're so right. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess we should talk about Carrie's tape a little bit because so I really love when episodes have like an organizing like structure or something that everyone can react to. Um, 
My normal example of this is um, the season premiere for Game of Thrones uh, season two, where there's that red comet in the sky. And then as they kind of cut to catching you up with, here's what Jon Snow's doing here, here's what Bran's doing, here's what Daenerys is doing. They always start with the red comet in the sky and then kind of pan down as kind of like an organizing feature for the episode. And it almost feels like Carrie's uh, audition tape (laughs) is that here. Like we have the kids reacting to it early. um, And then we later have... uh, what Hugo and Jerry reacting to it. Um, and then it becomes this big thing where Logan's like, Tom, you know, you, you, you know what to do. Like, I don't have to say it. I'm not involved. This is me being involved for a second, but I'm not involved <laughs> after this. Um, and then he kind of just leaves it unsaid. Um, and then it all kind of builds up to Tom exercising his power on Greg. But this is also kind of Greg's first time really trying to kind of exercise power on mm-hmm. his own within ATN. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I mean, he, doesn't really do it that well. He equivocates a lot. Um, he doesn't know what to say. He makes his own argument seem dumb when he says, well, you know, the polling wasn't good on this. And then it's like, who was the focus group is like oh, a bunch of twerps and old geezers. Like he's not helping his case in any way or like he's trying to put her down. And then, you know, a good manager, quote unquote, like criticizes, but builds you up and he's capable of doing neither. <laughs> um, so he's not able to actually tell uh, Carrie what's wrong with, uh, her audition tape, which just sucks. But then he's also not able to like reinforce that with like positive messaging um, to the point where Carrie's able to just walk out on him and tell him, I'm going to like pull you apart like string cheese. And like, uh, he just kind of like sit there is like, did I do good? I don't know. <laughs> did I? <laughs> like, he's almost like baffled as to what happened there. Yeah. I. But it's like, it is Greg's strength though, isn't it? That he's just so fucking mm-hmm. stupid. Like, I, like, I think Carrie can be like, oh, I'm going to tear you apart like sh- like string cheese. But, like, he's not really string cheese, is he? Like, he, there's not really mm-hmm. anything there to pull apart. Like, he, he can, well, oh, what's he going to do? Like, go back to being, doing what he was doing before? Vomiting while being stoned off his ass in a theme park mascot suit? Like, like Greg can fall um, and that might suck a little bit for him, but he's not really that high up anyways. Like, he's, he's a little bit more hashtag empowered girl boss style now. But, like... He hasn't really gotten anything that he he didn't have before. And so if he falls Mm. to the bottom, then he falls and that's fine. And I get the sense that he would actually probably find it a bit of a relief um, and then just go on being um, a weird guy to some other people. Um, And and I think it's kind of funny because in that way, he ends up being almost invincible (laughs) because he doesn't really care except for like in the kind of socially awkward way. And like he doesn't really have anything to lose. And he seems to be functionally unembarrassable, even though he does clearly get embarrassed. Like it doesn't really seem to actually impact him in any material way. And so in that sense, he's kind of like the succession superhero. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good call. Uh, I'm really interested to see, I know we only have like seven or so episodes left with them, but like, a lot of times when Tom has pushed Greg in the past, that's like a di- direct result of Shiv pus- uh, pushing Tom. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, a transference of who's going to, you know, fuck who. So like Shiv bees be annoying to Tom and then Tom kind of takes that out on Greg. But now like that Tom and Shiv relationship is, uh, what's it called, kind of severed and like, Tom has almost moved up into that Shiv spot. And like, this is what they talked about last time. Like Greg is almost like the new Tom and Greg will soon have his own little Greg underneath him at some point. Um, So I'm really interested (laughs) if their relationship kind of goes somewhere else. And it has, but like without Shiv being kind of that like inciting factor for Tom, or at least in a different, 
not the way that she was in the first three seasons. Um, I wonder if their relationship changes. And I think it has. Like in the break between season, we've seen there's been a little bit of a leveling where they're the disgusting brothers now. Um, and they're almost like equals in a way that they never were prior to the season. Yeah, it, it, it is the weird sort of equality of it that I think like, I, I don't know, or is it like, or is it maybe less of like, because I, I always, in my head, I always sort of visualize like the relationship between Tom and Greg as like a sort of portrait of Dorian Gray kind of thing, except like, Ooh, wow, like full yeah. morality and like, and, and instead I think they've kind of reached this like equilibrium in that like, Greg has made Tom as human as Tom could ever be made again. And, and, and Tom has made Greg as inhuman as he could ever possibly make Greg. And like, they're just kind of stuck there. And like, it's not quite like a rut, but it is this kind of like, it is, it's just, it is just an equilibrium. And like, they, these guys might just be topping out in terms of like what they as characters could ever possibly do and what they as people in this universe could ever possibly do. And like, you know, I think that's a bit like Logan maybe saw some potential in Tom as this kind of like easily, easy to exploit thing and a way to kind of needle Shiv. And now Tom's kind of served his purpose and will probably just be a bit of a floater um, at the, in the, the, the toilet bowl that is ATN. And, and that's kind of it. And, and I, and I feel like it's interesting because I had possibly misinterpreted the two of them, Tom and Greg as leading up to some big blowout of some sort. Like I kind of felt like they were going to be the thing, the, the, the sort of nucleus that would split and, 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 and create the kind of Trinity uh, Sands experiment that was going to end this show. And now I kind of feel like, not with a a bang, but with a whimper almost is, is where these guys are headed. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I'd be surprised if there's some kind of fissure between them uh, between now and then, but you never know. Um, I do have one last question for you. Um, it's a bit off topic, but I want to know if you go to a bar and you want to just drink what a real American <laughs> or a real Scott, if you want to stick with that, um, drinks, what is your drink of choice? Um, if I was trying to be uh, an authenticrat, it would be a pint of tenants, which is lager. Um, I would my normal drink however is the is now increasingly because i'm old and and pathetic is uh is vodka soda lime um and i unlike shiv do not have a fucking meltdown over the cleanliness of the nozzle at what appears to be an absurdly expensive bar and by no means a dive bar <laughs> yeah i think i was listening or reading something else and it looks like it's one of the nicer bars in like the east village <laughs> yeah. um like that is probably a bar that is like right just currently right now out of my price range to go to because it's at least probably ten dollars for a draft beer at that place. Oh um, god! <laughs> yeah, at this point, I am a vodka soda guy. I or vodka sprite rather, um, because I like Ugh. sugar, so I can't do uh, tonic water or stuff. I need a little bit of sugar. I used to be a big beer guy. I used to be a big whiskey guy. Um, I would just get too fucked up and too hungover on whiskey. I can't do it anymore. Um, and because I am 30 or 40 years old, um, hopefully this isn't too much TMI, but as you grow older, you become just a little more incontinent a little, you know, every year. <laughs> um, so drinking loads and loads of beer is not for me anymore. Uh, so yeah, to me, it's just like a vodka Sprite. It's a clear liquor. I won't feel too much like shit. Um, and I won't be peeing like every 45 minutes through the night. So it's like so funny because thing. I can just hear all of that as like a 
Greg, let me tell you how to drink. I'm going to tell you how to drink. Ah, drink, not Greg. Was the Greg there? Um, I was just that had like very Tom <laughs> bestowing his wisdom on on Greg, who is trying to just order his like little porn star martini or his little sex on the beach at whatever incredibly she she bar they have ended up at, which is not by any means ever going to be a like ten dollar craft beer bar that they're pretending is a dive bar. <laughs> Oh, man, it would be so great if we got a Disgusting Brothers bar crawl at some point this season <laughs> and just have them go out for a night on the town. That'd be make a great finale. It's just the two of them. No other actual Roy's in the mix. It's just them uh, getting out and getting fucked up and trying to be average Americans. <laughs> Insane. So before we sign off, we would like to thank our $10 and $5 patrons. As a reminder, if you sign up for our Patreon at the $10 level... Uh, We will read your Middle Earth name at the end of every episode. And for our $5 patrons, we will read your Middle Earth name uh, on a rotating basis. So, Emily, do you want to take the first one? Yes, we would like to thank Lothamana Palenka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Thanks to Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, the guardian of Kirith Ungol. And Idranar of Kolkorthad, a.k.a. Matty Hugh. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranwo Minyatar. (laughs) <laughs> Zach Newman, also known as Lyco Malma. <laughs> uh, Sal Quendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Tokono Tanar, a.k.a. Jonathan Dahan. Eruanian Taranen, a.k.a. Matthias Henson. <laughs> Ronessa, a.k.a. Nick Smith. And Penamel, a.k.a. Munchel. And for our $5 patrons this week, they do not have Middle Earth names, but we would like to thank Kayla. And Dave Skular. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycapmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, access to our community discord, and early access to all our regular episodes. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be licking the soda nozzles at all of the bars that Shivroy walks into. Toasting a pint poured out of one of those nozzles to our sound <laughs> editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir and Drithian, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my Roman, my Kendall, my Shiv. (laughs) Sorry, Khan.